Matthew 14. Verse 13. This is how the word of God reads. If you please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start on verse 13 and go all the way to verse 33. This is how it reads. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Verse 16, Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and and, and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may have a seat. Before I dive in, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we come to you and we praise you and we worship you for who you are. Father, you are the great I am. You are faithful with us. You are kind and, and patient, compassionate. Father, you've made a covenant with us. And you always keep up your end of the deal, of the bargain. And so, Father, would you engage with us this morning? Would you prepare the soil of our hearts, the seed of your word to fall in good soil and produce fruit? Holy Spirit, help us to understand and to apply your word this morning. Speak through me. Speak through me, Lord, that it be for your glory and for the good of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we walk through, I'm just going to dive right into the text. So as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, there are a few themes, a few things I want to hit on I think is important to understand as you all continue through this series going through Matthew. And so the first thing I want to emphasize 
in, in this gospel is that Matthew does um, a lot of work emphasizing uh, God's kingdom. Multiple times you see throughout this gospel, this, this kingdom language, the kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom of God. And so few people know that the primary thing Jesus taught on his teaching and preaching ministry is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. You see it in early on in Matthew. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or as you just looked at, uh, I believe you look at some of the parables, he starts off, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he goes in to his parables. Or the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching on, on what life looks like in the kingdom, kingdom ethics. And you all know the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He, he teaches us to pray, Father, as it is in heaven, would you do it here on earth? So he doesn't only ask us to pray it, but later on in the same chapter, he says to seek it, to pursue it. Seek first, 633, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So he, he, he preaches on, on the kingdom, the kingdom, which means the, the rule and reign of God. And his rule and reign has been brought here on earth through the person of Jesus Christ. Through the incarnation, through his life, his teaching, his, his miracles, his death, the resurrection, the ascension, the sending of the Spirit, the kingdom is now. It's present. But one day his rule and reign will be brought to completion at the consummation of the kingdom. This is the tension of the now and the not yet of the kingdom that we live in between. And so he emphasized the kingdom in this gospel. Second, scholars will say that this gospel is the most Jewish of the gospels. And there are a number of things that allude to this, but an easy one is just look at chapter 1. Most people, if you're in a reading plan, they skip over the first half of chapter 1, which is the genealogy of Jesus. Because to us, it's just a list of confusing names that few of us can actually say rightly just a list. But to the Jewish reader, this genealogy is, is dripping with, with Jewish history and, and full of meaning. It, it, it triggers images and, and stories and emotions. So this opening genealogy, it, it paints the picture for us that Jesus is the climax of the history of God's people. He, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All right, and I could spend so much time looking through the genealogy and, and, and how in the family line of Jesus there's ethnic and gender and moral outsiders. There's women there. There's some risque folks there. There's Gentiles there. In a Jewish patriarchal context, they valued uh, the man and, 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 and purity and, and, and uh, um, ethnicity and morality. And so in the family line of Jesus, man, there are... There are um, uh, there are prostitutes, there are um, murderers, there are wicked kings, and you could just go down the line. They're in the family line of Jesus. So there is gospel truth in the genealogy that God's love has scope, but it's also deep with forgiveness. And so just looking at the genealogy, man, you could just see that uh, uh, this gospel is, is connected to the Old Testament. And you also see throughout the Gospel of Matthew that this repeated fulfillment formula. And it goes like this. All this took place to fulfill what happened in the prophet, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or, or Micah 
or the Psalms. Jesus, he, he, he's fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. And then going back to, 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 to the first verse in chapter 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so, man, there's so much there in, in just that one sentence. Jesus, it means Yahweh is salvation or, or God is salvation. Christ, it, it means the anointed one, the, the, the Messiah. This is a royal title. And so Matthew is communicating that Jesus is the, is the coming Messiah. He's a great hope that Israel was waiting for. And this is reiterated in the, in the next title, the son of David. David is mentioned in verse 1. He's mentioned in verse 6, verse 17, again in verse 20 in, in chapter 1. And so David, you all know this, he was the great king of Israel who was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that through his lineage a king would come and a kingdom would be established forever. And so he's called the son of David. And his next title is the son of Abraham. Abraham, who was the father of Israel, who was also given a promise. And God promised him in Genesis 12 that through his lineage, all nations, all families, all ethnicities would be blessed. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, these these promises come together and are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Matthew connects Israel's history to Jesus saying, Israel, here is your Messiah, your, your eternal David, your king. And Gentiles, here is your universal hope. One promise in regards to time, uh, uh, I will establish a kingdom forever, and one in regards to scope, reach. Through you, all peoples will be blessed. So right from the beginning in Matthew, Matthew communicates that Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these major promises, that he's a Davidic king, that he will have an eternal kingdom, that he will be a blessing to all the peoples, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. And so, and And you see it's echoed at the end. This is the beginning. You see it echoed at the end in the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go and make disciples of what? Of all nations. You could translate that ethnicities. All authority, all nations. And then he calls for all allegiance. He says, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And so those are just a few things to be reminded of as, as we dive into this gospel. There's just a lot of themes and threads going uh, throughout this gospel. M- many scholars would say that, that, that a way to structure this gospel is around Jesus' five primary teachings. His five, there's five discourses uh, throughout the gospel of Matthew. And so our text in Matthew chapter 14, uh, it's on the heels of the third discourse uh, where Jesus teaches on the kingdom. And he's teaching on, on, on through parables. And so to kind of set the stage in chapter 14, uh, you could almost say that uh, Matthew, he, he contrasts two banquets. Two banquets. Verses 1 through 12, we have Herod's banquet. Chap- verses 13 through 21, we have this bank- Jesus' banquet where he multiplies and feeds the 5,000. At Herod's banquet, there is pride and arrogance and scheming. And murder. At Jesus' banquet, there's healing, truth, compassion, sharing, giving. I love what my mentor says that uh, when he talks about daily Bible reading, he says that every Christian should do their best to read a chapter out of a gospel 
each and every day. Why? Two reasons. One, because Jesus is the best picture of God that we have. So if you want to know God, look at Jesus. Second, Jesus is the best picture of who God wants us to become like. And so you would do well to read um, a, 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 a chapter of the gospel every day. And our text, it gives us a beautiful picture of the, the authority, the, the divine power of Jesus, but also the humanity of Jesus. Also the humanity of Jesus. And so first, we, we see in our text, we see a, a kind of a, a reoccurring or, or crucial rhythm of Jesus' life. Look at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, talking about John the Baptist's murder, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And so, and, they, and if you look ahead between the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, verse 23, look what it says. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So this word solitary place in verse 13, it has a wide variety of meanings depending on its context. It, it, it could be translated the desert, a deserted place, desolate place, solitary place, lonely place, quiet place, or, or, or even the wilderness. And so I think in, in this one verse, I think there's an example for us to follow here. Jesus, he, he makes it a, a, a routine practice. If you just read through the Gospels uh, of withdrawing from the crowds to do what one theologian calls to linger in prayer. To linger in prayer. I mean, in the Gospels, it says that Jesus, I think it's in Mark, he woke up early one morning while it was dark, and, and he went off to a quiet place to pray. I mean, there are times in the Gospels where the disciples, they're looking for Jesus, like, where's where Jesus? And they find him like, bro, we've been looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. What are you doing? Or Dr. Luke, in, in Luke chapter 5, Luke says that Jesus often, often, often withdrew to the lonely places to pray. And so Jesus, he, he befriended the quiet place with the Father. It was like clockwork for him. And the reality is, in 2021, in the United States of America, we know nothing of the quiet place. We know nothing of the, there was a, I was on a staff with a pastor uh, who's been a pastor for decades, and he grew up in like Montana. He was on a farm, and the first time he heard that we had to teach a class on silence and solitude, he just laughed. He said, what? Y'all have to teach silence? Because for him, he just grew up on the farm. It was just a part of how he was raised. Because we're we're addicted to hurry. We're addicted to busyness and, and noise and distraction. One study found that 77% of young adults answered yes when asked that when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. Another recent study shows that the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times per day. I did not say per week. Per day. Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And I think what she means is both sin and business can have the same effect. They can cut you off from being present with God, people, and even yourself. I'll take it a step further. One, one professor 
from Charleston Southern University School of Business conducted a, uh, an, an obstacles to growth survey of over 20,000 Christians across the globe and identified uh, busyness as a major distraction from the spiritual life. And listen to his hypothesis. He says, it may be the case that Christians are, are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live. And then he says, which leads to more conformity to culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and the cycle begins. And so I was just thinking the other day about what is the one commandment out of the Ten Commandments that, that we regularly brag about breaking? Think about it. And not explicitly, but implicitly. We regularly brag about breaking. We don't see it as a badge of honor, the Sabbath. The Sabbath. When I ask you, how was your week? How are you doing? Woo, it was busy. It was busy. It was a weekend, let me tell you. We're almost afraid. We almost have fear. To, 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 to portray as if I had some time to kind of relax and, and chill and be with God and to take a nap. Because we are, we are addicted to this pace of life and our identities are rooted in our jobs. Rooted in our jobs. I mean, I, I could go on about um, Israel coming out of Egypt and, and they were in bondage and slavery under the Egyptians and just, just think about, for, for years and years, they've been enslaved to work. So imagine how they're thinking through the lens of the Sabbath. Their, their identity has been all wrapped up in slavery and work. Now he's, he's, he's commanding them to, to, to Sabbath, to rest, to trust that God is sovereign, that he sustains the world, that he don't need you to keep the world going, and that your identity is not in your work, but it's in the gospel. Henry Nouwen says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. He says, we do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. Now, before you start rattling off excuses, and I know them all, I've got a demanding job, I'm an extrovert, I got kids. Stop and think about this. Jesus, and I repeat, Jesus needed time in the quiet place with the Father. So y'all make all the excuses you want. And, that may not, this, may, and this may not be a, a, a good sales pitch to help you grow in prayer, but I think in order for us to grow in our prayer life, to commune with the Lord, we need to befriend boredom. We've got to befriend boredom. Who likes to be bored up in here? Hey, I'm waiting for someone to call them out. No, you don't. So Jesus, he, he befriended the quiet place. And I think if we don't do this, I'll say it again, we're, we're going to struggle to be present with God, truly be present with God, and then to be present with others. I mean, that's the great commandment. Love God, love people. So if we're so distracted and we can't be silent and be with God, then we're not going to be able to live out this great commandment, which sums up the whole Old Testament, by the way. So hear me. I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a busy day or have a full schedule. I think Jesus stayed pretty busy, like we're about to find out. But he prioritized his relationship with his father. He prioritized it. And so Jesus, 
He's our Lord and Savior, but he's also our master teacher, teaching us how to live. And he's leading by example um, here in our text. And so I can keep going on about, about rhythms and, and, and silence and solitude and being with the Lord, um, but we've got to keep moving. So Jesus, he, he withdrew in the boat with his disciples to a quiet place, and the text says that, that, that the crowds caught wind of this and followed him on foot, which is a hilarious picture in my head. Like, you're on the boat, and these guys, they're like, man, we've got to go hear Jesus. We've got to go meet Jesus. Uh, verse 14, it says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So we see it, Jesus, he touches down the other side, searching for solitude. And what happens? He gets bombarded with the masses. Gets bombarded. And so we see the heart of God on full display right here. Jesus, he, he, he doesn't get annoyed with, with this interruption. He doesn't come up with an excuse why he can't stop. He doesn't put his head down and keep it moving like I have done before in public. Jesus, he, he shelves his own plans in need of the crowd. And it says, it says the crowd, uh, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. The great B.B. Warfield said that compassion is the most frequent emotion applied to Jesus in the Gospels. The most frequent emotion applied to Jesus in the Gospels. And this word compassion, it, it's a word that communicates that this moved Jesus at the deepest part of his inner being, of his gut, the deepest part of, of himself. It, it moved him. And then it says, I love it, it says he had compassion on the sick, and then he gave them a gospel track. I'm glad, hey, 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 I would have been concerned if I'd be like, amen, woo, give him that gospel track. No, 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 no. I'm glad y'all caught that, I'd have been concerned. Yes, Lord, give him the gospel track. So we see his attitude of compassion was accompanied by action. He healed them. He, he connects his attitude of compassion with acts of compassion. And so, and I love it, he not only uh, uh, heals them, but later on he, he feeds them. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that this text teaches that the Christian faith is not just some abstract, head-in-the-clouds faith that never touches the pavement. We are embodied souls. Jesus cares about our physical needs. Back to the Lord's prayer. He, he said, pray for daily bread. Pray for daily bread. Pray for your daily needs. Our bodies matter. And this is rooted in the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus had a body. He slept, he ate, he rested, he had emotions, he had needs. I mean, could you imagine here if Jesus looked at his disciples and said, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't in inconvenience ourselves for the physical well-being of these people. We just stay in our lane and preach the gospel. Could you imagine if he said that? Jesus not only cares about sick people, hungry people, oppressed people, he actually does something. He does something. The, 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 the compassion of Christ, I think here, is also to be the, the compassion of the church. And so the question on the table is, and this convicts the mess out of me, but is, is it true compassion if it solely remains a fuzzy feeling in our stomachs? Is it compassion if we are passionate about helping the poor, the sick, 
the marginalized, racial inequality, the unborn, immigrants, but our lives never actually do something. This word compassion is the same word used when the Good Samaritan saw the man uh, dying in the road, left for dead. It said that he had compassion on him. Same word. And what did he do? He inconvenienced himself, his schedule, his plans. He tended to his wounds. He put the man on his donkey, which means he walked, brothers and sisters, he walked. He brought him to an end, cared for him. And, and essentially, he gave the innkeeper his card and said, whatever he buys, charge it to me. I got him. I got him. This is Christ-like compassion. This is Christ-like compassion. And so Jesus, he, he, he's seeking the solitary place to be with the Lord. He comes in contact with the crowds. He, he has compassion on them. He heals them. And so the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he puts on this, this medical clinic for a day. And it's getting late, and the disciples start getting kind of antsy. They start getting uncomfortable. They start having questions. Look at verse 15 and 17. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish that answered. This is funny to me. The disciples make a suggestion, which is really in the form of a command. And they don't preface their command with the respectful Lord. But abruptly, they, they, they tell Jesus the, the time of day it is, where he is, and what he should do. As if he's completely oblivious to these things. I mean, this would not fly in my household. And, and, and my three-year-old comes to me, hey, Dad, you know what time it is. You need to feed my, me and my friends. I would not fly uh, with Mrs. Burns or me. So the disciples command Jesus, send these folks away so they can get some food. I love Jesus' response. He's cool, calm, and, con- and in control. He says, they don't need to go anywhere. You give them something. You feed them. You feed them. And they come to him almost sarcastically, some scholars say, but we only have five loaves and, and two fish. The, the disciples were more focused on the problem than they were on Jesus. I mean, can you blame the disciples? They, they were being realistic. They were being practical. Jesus says, you feed them. He, he put demands on them that they are clearly incapable of fulfilling. And my question is, Like, you guys realize all the things he's done up to this point. I mean, up to this point, Jesus, he's cleansed the leper, cooled a fever, calmed the storms, restored a paralytic, healed a woman of 12-year charge of blood, raised a little girl from the dead, opened the eyes of the blind, made the mute speak, healed a brother's hand on the Sabbath. And these guys are like, where are we going to get dinner? (laughs) As As if his first he didn't turn water into wine to provide it for a whole party. These disciples, man, they were fixated on their own perspective and limitations. I mean, these disciples are really struggling. Like, Lord, what? Like, I only packed five loaves and two fish. Like, I meal prepped this last night. And I don't really want to give it to you. Like, I, I, I prepared. 
They're struggling, and they really try to tell Jesus what to do and how to do it. I mean, who does that sound like? We think our ideas are the best ideas. We like to tell Jesus, tell God what to do, how to do it, how it should be done. With our worldly ways of thinking, seeing seeing things through our lens where Jesus is absent from the equation. They were not seeing Jesus as a part of the equation here. And again, Jesus, he's better than me with all his kindness and patience. Verse 18, he says, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. This this word sit, um, it means recline, which was a normal word or posture for a banquet or a feast. And so in so many words, Jesus is saying, get comfortable. Get comfortable. And then it says, verse 19, 20, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, which which was a normal Jewish practice. He, He blessed the food. He broke the loaves, and then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Mm, I love that. Verse 21, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So Jesus, he took the five loaves and two fish, and he multiplied it enough for everyone to eat. Look at the text. The text says there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So I want you to notice that Matthew, he, he was a product of his patriarchal society, which does not bother counting women and children. All right? And so now the culture in which Matthew is writing, again, it, it devalues women and children. But this certainly does not mean that Jesus devalues them. Look at the text. Jesus feeds them all. Jesus feeds them all. All of them were satisfied. Jesus certainly counted the women and children here. This is the kingdom of God. All people are invited to the table. All people are invited to the table. I love it. This this word satisfied here is a picture of one being full or, or a fattened animal, which is flattering. Flattened animal. These people were filled to the brim. Filled to the brim. And then it says they had leftovers. Who loves leftovers? They had leftovers. They were sending people home with boxes. <laughs> leftovers. <laughs> this just points to, to, to the magnitude of the miracle. Jesus flexed on them. I mean, he overdid it. I mean, in my imagination, man, he, he had more bread than needed. And he's just like, y'all were like, how are we going to feed him? And we, you know, he, he, he knew. He knew. He said, bring him here to me. Are the words Jesus said to the disciples. Look at the invitation Jesus makes to the disciples. Give me what you got. However insignificant it may be. That's the invitation Jesus gives us all. Give me what you got. Give me what you got. Jesus does something supernatural with the natural. Jesus can use... The ordinary, complex situations and turn it it into extraordinary situations. And so he invites the disciples to partake in this miracle. Give me what you got, even if you don't think it's little. And he does something with 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 their five loaves and two fish. Does something in their poverty. 
He turns it into something that they never could have imagined. And he multiplies it, and he allows the disciples. Man, look at the grace here. He allows the disciples to distribute the food to the people. They did nothing on their own strength to make this miracle happen. and He lets them distribute the food to the people. Man. I mean, and, and, and now the, j- j- just think of the Jewish reader if, if they were hearing, reading this story. And, the, and all the Old Testament stories that would have popped up, they would have thought about Israel wandering in the wilderness, a.k.a. a desolate place, an exodus. And under the leadership of Moses, God provides manna from heaven. They would have thought of 2 Kings 4, the prophet Elisha feeding 100 men with 20 loaves. In that story, there was a crowd. There was an insufficient amount of food. Uh, one of Elisha's servants doubted. And Elisha essentially said, you let God do the math. They ate and had some left over. Point is, is that Jesus, man, he's the greater Moses. He, he's the greater Elisha. In the, in the Gospel of John, he calls himself the bread of life. He says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. That whoever comes to me shall not hunger anymore, a.k.a. they will be satisfied. Whoever feeds on this bread, they will live forever. Friends, if you continue to eat at the table of this world, money, sex, power, complete autonomy from God, you will always be hungry. You will always be hungry. And we will starve ourselves. You'll always be hungry. Look at the words here in our text. When when Jesus took the bread and the fish, He looked up to heaven. He blessed it, broke it, and gave it. What does that sound like? He 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 took the bread and the fish. He looked up to heaven, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. Many scholars point out the resemblance of the Lord's Supper here. These are the same words used foreshadowing how Jesus will provide for the world, giving himself, breaking his body for salvation for the world. He looked up. He he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. His miracles were not separated from the work that he had been sent here to do. Amen. One theologian says, I'm going to end with this. I don't know if I'm going to get to the walking on the water. One theologian says, the miraculous feeding of the multitude was a short-term solution. The upside-down alternative for Jesus was to offer himself as the permanent bread of life. The permanent bread. Bread of life. Friends, Jesus is the authoritative, powerful, compassionate, contemplative King of kings and Lord of lords. This miracle is a sign that the kingdom of God is here on earth, that he has authority, that he rules and reigns over all things, over this, this, this little situation for him. And then later on, he, he walks on water. He walks on water, and, and the disciples, they're terrified. Oh, my gosh, it's a ghost. He says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then Peter says, Lord, if it is you, call me out on the water. Peter, man, he's, he's always ready to go. He walks out on the water, and he looks, at the, he looks at the waves, the wind, and he starts sinking. And Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter says, save me, Lord. And he grabs him. They both get in the water. And I love the response. And Peter almost drowned it. And this is their response. They get in the boat. 
And they said, surely this is the son of God. And it says they worshiped him. They worshiped him. King Jesus, man, when, 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 uh, when you come to him, he is worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of all of our worship. King of kings, Lord of lords. All of our worship. All, all authority for all peoples, all allegiance. He's worthy of our worship. And I loved walking on the water because, I mean, there's all different ways you could take that miracle. But the scripture does not ever promise that if you follow Jesus, trials will not happen. That adversity is going to leave your life. But he does promise that he's going to be there in the midst of it. He's going to be there in the midst of it. So, man, Jesus is the bread that we are to feast on, that will quench our thirst. He will Fill our, satisfy our, our bellies. He will, he will satisfy our eternal hunger. So let's, man, let's, let's pray. Let, let's continue to worship him. And pray, God, would you bring your kingdom here on earth? Father, we, we, we pray that. That you would reign Rule reign at the Bridge Church, that you would use the Bridge Church to, to bring your kingdom in the city of Wichita. Lord, to preach your gospel, but also to meet the needs of the community. To take on the, the attitude of compassion and to connect it, to, to pair it with the actions of compassion. Father, I pray for the person here who is hungry and they're eating at all of these tables the Lord is offering. And they're not leaving satisfied. Father, would they come to Jesus? Holy Spirit, would they, would they come to Jesus? Father, convict us, Father, of where we are, um, where we have blind spots, where we like to be like the disciples and tell Jesus what to do and how to do it. Father, help us to submit to him, to follow him as 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 Savior, as Lord, and as Master Teacher. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.